Okay, so um, a couple of housekeeping things before we hop into the last section of Colossians. We're going to do all of Colossians 4 today, except chapter, or except verse 1 um, from last, it's been like a couple of weeks since we met, I suppose. Um, so today is we're going to finish Colossians. Next week will be our last week doing this study, so we'll actually still meet next Wednesday and we are going to walk through the book of Philemon, which is just one short chapter, but it is kind of the companion letter to Colossians. They were likely delivered um, by the same guy at the same time. It's just Colossians was delivered to the church leadership. Philemon was delivered to a man named Philemon with his runaway slave that Paul is returning. And it's uh, just that phrase right there, with his runaway slave, Paul is sending back to his master, makes that book kind of a really interesting one to study, and it's, it's, a, it's an incredible book that has three people, Philemon, Paul, and um, his slave, Onesimus, and it's an incredible account of what Paul believes the gospel, how it affects all three of them, and why it is the ultimate kind of level playing field, or playing field leveler. Um, so next week we'll talk through Philemon, and then we'll be done for the summer which means that those of you who spend time with me on Sunday mornings, we will go back to the library and we'll start our study of Isaiah. Um, and those of you who are with these guys will go back, will stay in your room on Sunday mornings, and then this will, I, I don't know, how many weeks until Thursday night start up? So, so that first Thursday before school starts? So. There you go. So next Wednesday will be our last Wednesday study, and then after that it'll be um, Thursdays as usual, Sunday mornings with me. Um, okay, let's hop in. Um, we're going to, again, pick it up in verse 2, but I want to see how this, this last section of the letter fits with the rest of um, the book. So in verses, um, I think it's, they start in 3 right? Chapter 1, 3 through 14, you have the work of the Father put on display. The continuous work of the Father. Paul goes to some lengths to describe that God the Father is working in accordance with the things that He has always been doing. He is consistent with the plan of salvation. He is lining Himself up with what's going to take place to the rest of Colossians um, that, that matches up with God's plan from Genesis on. So he has the work of the Father in 1, starting in 15 through I think 23. Yeah, 23. You have the work of the Son. If the work of the Father is continuous, whoops, consistent with um, the rest of Scripture, the work of the Son, the way I would describe it is it's the climactic work of the Son. It is the apex of Scripture, what takes place in Christ as God reveals Himself and continues to work out His plan. The Father continues this work in the Son. It kind of comes to an ultimate climax in chapter 1, 24 through 2, is it 7? 5. You have the work of Paul. And it all kind of follows. If the Father's work continues in line with the rest of his revelation, then Jesus' work is the climax of that revelation. And in light of that, Paul's work is kind of the apostolic work that kind of goes in, in, in line with the Father and the Son. 
He is the messenger that is bringing this particular um, gospel. And then from 2, 6 to, I think, 4, 1, yep, last week, you have the, he's, it's a call to faithfulness. So we'll just call it Faithful Colossians. It's Paul saying, in light of the Father's work, in light of the Son's work, and in light of my service to, um, to both you and others in regard to Christ, I'm calling you to be faithful believers in Colossae. That's the bulk of the letter. And then he ends with 4.2 through 18 to the end of the letter. The eschatological... And I'll explain that word. Eschatological mission. The eschaton is just a way of describing the end. And so eschatological is something that is oriented towards the end, has the end in mind. And he says, uh, God has done this, in Jesus He's done this, I have done this, I'm calling you to faithfulness, and this is how I want you to live, this is how I want you to pray, this is how I want you to go on about your life with the end in mind. An eschatological mission. He's going to talk about relating to one another, relating to the outsiders, and in all these things, this is how you should pray, this is how you should hope. This is how the letter ends. The eschatological mission to the world. So, that brings us into our text. So let's kind of unpack what this looks like. Um, and before we read this, I want us to just kind of throw a question in the air and see what, see what sticks. If to have the end in mind is to have a mind that uh, understands that we are in the last days, or the Apostle John will call it the last hour, um, all of this stuff is pointing to the second coming of Jesus. If Paul says, I want you to have this in mind, and considering how you live, a good question to ask is, what's supposed to take place before Jesus comes back? Before He returns, what needs to happen? How you answer this is pretty fascinating. Pretty famous guy who said that a number of things had to happen, a number of prophecies had to happen, actually just died the other day, Tim LaHaye. Um, the very famous author or co-author of the Left Behind series that says all these events must take place before blah, 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 it's all this timeline, and then Jesus can return. Um, I don't think, and, and I think for the most part, Sonny Brook doesn't think that there's really anything to take place. I mean, all we're kind of waiting for is the fullness of the Gentiles to come in, whatever that means. But it's not as though... A, an antichrist, or if I want to combine all the figures that we kind of think are the end times, I just call it the anti-beast of lawless, lawlessness. You have the dragon, and then you have a prostitute, and you have um, a Hitler-like figure. And so I just, the anti-beast of lawlessness has to come back and then destroy everything, and then finally, after we've all suffered enough, Jesus will return. That's really not how the Bible talks. 
That's not how the Bible talks. The Bible speaks. Paul preaches as if Jesus is coming back now. He's actually accused. Modern scholars accuse the apostles of getting Christianity wrong because it just seemed like they expected Jesus to come back any day. And he didn't. Therefore, how can we trust the rest of what they wrote? But maybe they're actually just modeling a mindset. Maybe they're modeling this expectancy that, yes, it could happen any time. Maybe we're just always living in the last days. Maybe we're always on the cusp of Christ returning. Um, a great section to, to kind of flesh this out. And, this is, and then we'll ju- I promise we'll get to Colossians. But 1 John 2. He says this. This is the apostle. This is one of the guys that was with the, the, the inner three of Jesus' circle. Um, the apostle John says this to the church in Ephesus. He says, children, talking to his congregation, it is the last hour. He says he doesn't seem to think that the last days are coming or that the last hour is coming or that it's some way off future. He says it's, it's now the last hour. This is 1 John 2, 18. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Um, again, that's why I can poke fun at that title, like we're waiting for an Antichrist to come. And, and he's going to explain what an Antichrist is. It's not someone, it's more of a title that you can earn, depending on how bad your belief system is. So any one of you, should you aspire to do so, can become an Antichrist. And here's what he'll say. Therefore, since the Antichrists have come, since these, these people exist, we know that it is the last hour or the last days. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. But, talking to the Ephesian church, you have been anointed by the Holy One and you have all knowledge. We'll come back to that line in a little bit. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies Jesus is the Christ? That's an Antichrist. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. Goes against the first bulk of Paul's letter. To disagree with that is to be an Antichrist. No one who denies the Son has the Father, and then he goes on and on. We'll, we'll read that last little bit in, the, in, in a moment. But the point is, Paul just seems, or John seems to think that we're living at the end. And if you go back to Colossians 4, Paul writes as though we're living at the end of time. That Jesus is just going to return at any moment. Could someone kindly read to me verses 2 through 4? We'll start there. We'll pick up speed quickly. Okay. There's this, there's a deep sense of urgency in this passage. Paul says, "Continue steadfastly in prayer." There's this alertness he's calling them to, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Now, this term "watchful" we can just breeze right by it pretty quickly, but it is a term that the prophets used quite a bit, and that Jesus Himself uses quite a bit. And it's not watch out lest you slip and fall. That's really not its concern most of the time. 
Its concern is having an understanding of the times, having an understanding of the current situation, having an understanding of, of, of where God is in history. It's being watchful in that sense. It's an eschatological alertness. It's an understanding that the end is near. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Paul calls them, pray as though Jesus is coming back. Pray with all the hope that is wrapped up in His return. And though it hasn't yet happened, this is how your your prayer can be really, really biblical, though it hasn't yet happened, be thankful that it will. Your hope is so strong that you can already pray with thankfulness. And he's asking them to kind of live in light of this truth. Prayer should be so certain and so hopeful that it thanks God for a future reality. At the same time, he says, pray also for us. So he's now asking them to pray for his mission. That God may open to us a door for the word, that is the gospel, to declare the mystery of Christ. on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So the, it's, it's in, I don't want to make too much of the order, but there's something to the order. Pray that God will open the door, and then pray that I'll be able to proclaim the mystery of Christ. Pray that God will open the door, and then pray that I will be able to proclaim the mystery of Christ. Um, we've seen this word mystery a couple of times. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 26... Uh, he says that he's been given um, a task, and the task is to make the Word of God fully known, verse 26, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. What do we remember this mystery uh, referring to? Hmm? The, Jesus is kind of the full revelation, you know, Whatever, whatever revelation Moses, Abraham, David, and company had, it was incomplete. It was incomplete. And when Jesus comes on the scene, He is the climactic work of God. There is, like, what's greater than Jesus? What can explain things greater than Jesus? No apostle can. No church can. What's better? There's no prophets left that can out-explain Jesus. Jesus is the pinnacle of revelation. He, once He comes on the scene, the mystery falls away. The mystery of God now revealed in Jesus. He says it also in 2.2. Two. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance and of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We'll come back to the wisdom and knowledge piece. But this mystery, Paul says, please pray with an urgency that time is short, that God will open doors, and that I will be able to proclaim this mystery. And that mystery is, is Christ, is the full revelation of God. Um, an eschatological hope, a hope that is bound by that things are coming to enclose, begs for God to produce more followers of Christ, begs for God to let the gospel go forward. 
Um, this is also a comforting prayer because Paul doesn't seem to rely on his own work. God opens the doors and God will make him effective. It's a, it can be an incredibly an incredible comfort to have that kind of view of God. Um, there is the parallel to this particular section in Ephesians 6. I don't want to steal too much time going and reading it, but if you want to look at Ephesians 6, verses 18 through 20, it is very much a similar prayer that lines up with this, and the two can help explain each other quite well. He goes on in verse 5, Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So we'll start with five, walking in wisdom towards outsiders. Again, wisdom is a word that's used in Colossians quite a bit. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 9. And so from the day we heard, Paul says, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, which results so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So he seems to say that wisdom produces something. Walking, so that would be um, obedience. It pleases God, it bears fruit, and it increases in knowledge. This wisdom sounds pretty awesome. That's what Paul wants the Colossian church to have. He says, I want you to have this wisdom. I want you to walk in obedience. I want you to bear fruit. I want you to offer up a good witness to outsiders, making the best use of the time. Again, Paul seems to think the time is short. So banking the best use of your time. So that's how we, um, that is how we are to, to live. And now he's going to talk about how we should speak. Let your speech always be gracious. Stop there. What does it mean to have gracious speech? This is, a, this is where I, I have a, a pause because I don't think that's actually like a very good description of it. gracious speech. You might have certain ideas about what that means. It's actually, it should say grace-filled speech. Grace-full speech. So what is Paul referring to when he talks about speech that is full of grace? I think that there's two... Um, likely options that are probably simultaneously true. Paul's kind of the master of the quasi-double meanings. Obviously, gracious speech or speech full of grace is one that proclaims the gospel, proclaims a, a message of grace. And that's where I think we naturally go. But I think another way that Paul can speak in such a way that he is walking in wisdom and um, and is winning outsiders with his speech is to actually speak with grace. And so it's, it's fun to ask, what does grace mean? Uh, Moss and I have been reading this very fascinating book that's kind of pulling away some of the baggage that at least I have when it comes to the word grace. Paul, when he uses concepts of grace, is most often describing something that is willing to be wronged. It has nothing to do with what you are worth. It has nothing to do with any sort of merit you might bring to the table. It has nothing to do with your value. It is simply offered with a, with a willingness to be wronged. It's a, it's a vulnerable thing to extend grace, as Paul typically describes it. Um, 
So if, if your speech should be gracious, and we use kind of Paul's definition that he, I think he uses elsewhere, it's speech that, that takes into account nothing of what someone is worth, nothing of what they've been able to do, no value they bring to the table, just here's, here's something that you need, this message, this wisdom that I think he is bringing, seasoned with salt. Even, he even admits, if you go back to being salt of the earth in Matthew 5, this idea that um, what you say and what you do should bring at least a picture of heaven to earth. Salt is something that is uh, used as a preservative. And so this, this image in the ancient world is something that would prevent decay. And so Paul says, speak kindly to those that don't deserve it. Speak in such a winsome way that um, in some ways you're preserving the world. Bringing a, a slice of heaven to this earth is what I think it's talking about in Matthew 5. Seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. There's the kind of the apologetic side. Um, this, this, this idea that you need to be prepared to speak. This is 2 Timothy 3.16, always be prepared to give a defense for the hope that you have, um, or 3.14.15, somewhere in there. 16 is all scriptures God breathed. I think 14 or 15 is um, always be prepared. If you've staked your entire life on an idea or a person, um, you should at least have a working understanding of it such that you can explain the hope that you have. And Paul says, and be ready to explain the urgency you have. Why you pray like this? Why you are so um, expectant for the end of all things that you would live this way? Which brings us to, in my Bible, the heading is the final greetings. Um, there's three major sections of people here. This is a good list of people, um, which Scott's going to touch on at length. But let's read through this. The first section of people are the messengers that are actually bringing the letter. He says, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that we may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. So these are the men bringing the letters. Um, Tychicus was one of the men that was with Paul on his third missionary journey. So, uh, a traveler of Paul's. Um, he was actually, I think, no, he wasn't. He wasn't with, with Luke. But um, when he marches in carrying the letter, many letter carriers in the ancient world could walk in. They, they, were, they weren't just like a postman. It was someone who actually was um, credible to speak on behalf of whoever wrote the actual letter. So when he walks into Colossae and he delivers this letter, it's likely that he would have been the first one to read it, speaking with some level of Pauline authority as the official carrier of the letter. This is the man that Paul put it in his hand, therefore he is going to speak on Paul's behalf um, and, and bear the authority of Paul. Onesimus is, notice how he's described Faithful and beloved brother, one of you. He's faithful. We love him. He's a member of the church. He's one of us. Never calls him a slave. And yet that's who he is. 
this man is being returned to his owner. And if you recall what we discussed a few weeks ago on Sunday with Drew, or on Wednesday, me hobbling through Drew's notes, um, slaves, this is not American slavery from the 19th century. This is likely a man that owed a debt to someone and his, his enslavement was a, was a process of repaying a debt. And, and we'll talk about it more next week. But this is Paul sending a man saying, have the integrity to honor your debts to your master. And at the same time, he is going to call on his master to look at him as a brother in Christ and to set him free. And it's amazing how Paul pushes the gospel from both ends and says this should inform your relationship. He's returning this man. Paul never describes him as Philemon's property. He says our faithful brother, one of us. I love I, I, that. Just that line jumps out to me that there's no mention of his actual economic status. He is just a member of the church. So those are the messengers carrying the letters, and you can see that he even tells them why he sent them. He wants the church to know how they're doing, and he wants the church to be encouraged by Paul um, suffering imprisonment well. That's their charge. Then he gets into, um, he starts to greet um, uh, people that are working with him that aren't in Colossae, that are possibly with Paul at the time. But he says this in verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Um, It's interesting that Paul takes the time to point out that his ministry is largely a non-Jewish one. He's got three Jewish guys working with him. He's a man of the circumcision. I don't think he's using that as a derogatory term. I think he's just describing that these are Jewish Christians that are engaging in the mission to the Gentiles, which actually might be a really interesting thing to hear. Jewish men proselytizing um, Greeks. Um, Aristarchus was also a traveling companion of Paul. He was with Paul in Acts 19 when Paul gets, uh, has to run out of the Ephesian riot. Uh, the riot in the theater in Ephesus. He's with him then. And he's also at the very end of Acts in the we sections when Paul and Luke, when the book all of a sudden switches to um, these plural pronouns that Luke is now with Paul as a traveling companion. Aristarchus was with him. So he possibly um, would have been on the shipwreck. He would have been uh, with Paul in that, that last bit. Mark is the one that Paul refused to work with. Um... He thought he was weak, and he thought that he had abandoned them, but it appears by this point they've reconciled, and they're now working together again. Um, It goes on in verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you? Likely the guy who who planted the church at Colossae. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in in all the will of God, for um, I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. So, Epaphras considered the founder of the church. Um, I love his prayer. He prays this. He prays that you would stand. And it's not in the text, but I think it's implied. Stand firm under any sort of persecution or threat. That you would be mature 
that you would be um, fully assured and that you would be operating inside the will of God. So he prays for their faithfulness, for their sanctification, for the hope that they have in the end of all things and that they would be obedient to the will of God. If you don't know what to pray for someone, that's a pretty stinking good prayer. I pray that you'll remain faithful. I pray that you'll continue to grow and in, into Christ-like maturity. I pray that you will maintain the hope that you have in Him. And I pray that in all these things take place under the will of God. That's a pretty good prayer. That's what their lead pastor or church planter, whatever he would have was, was to the church of Colossae, that's what he was praying for them. Paul wanted them to know that. He wanted them to know that he's worked hard for them and for those in kind of the sister cities around Hierapolis and Laodicea. He then says that Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. Now Luke, we know him, author of Luke and Acts, again, traveling companion to Paul, with him at the end of the book of Acts. Demas is the, uh, the loser of the bunch here. This guy is doing well now. He's with Paul. But if you'll flip over to 2 Timothy 4, a letter written quite a bit after Colossians. 2 Timothy is the last letter we have that Paul wrote, and if you read it, it sounds like a dying man's letter. I think Paul knows the end is near. It says this in 2 Timothy 4, um, verse 10. Well, verse 9. Do your best to come to me soon, writing to his, his disciple, Timothy. And this is why, for Demas in love with the present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. So, interesting man, he abandons. Um, Mark abandons Paul early, and they reconcile. Demas is with Paul during this time, and by the time Paul is in Roman imprisonment, likely about to be beheaded um, by Roman authorities, Demas has deserted him. And then he greets um, those that he knows in Colossae. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house, the woman um, hosting a church in her home. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church at, of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the, the letter from Laodicea. So he's writing letters to two churches, asking them to share. Some good wisdom in both. Um, we obviously don't have the letter to the Laodiceans. It would be sweet if they find it. The second they find it, I'm taping it in my Bible. Um, but I also trust this far removed. We don't have it because God didn't want us to have it. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Um, likely a leader in the church. Likely a man that Paul is calling to just biblical faithfulness when it comes to the gospel. Also possibly the man that Paul is asking to handle the situation between Philemon and Onesimus which, again, we'll read that situation next week. And then Paul um, takes the letter from his, uh, from his amanuensis, from his secretary who's been writing it, and gets out his big chief tablet and starts to sign his name because he's blind. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. And that's how he ends it. That is how he ends it. Opens it up with the grace of God in Christ, closes it with... Remember my chains, which is just Paul's way of saying, remember that I am being faithful. And Paul's not asking them to pray for him out of prison. Just be faithful. Grace be with you.
So, take a couple of minutes, and then... Actually, I want you to think about this, this, this question real quick. We just read a list of all these names. Um, before Scott gets up here, um, think through these names, peruse them again, and see if there's anything that you notice about them. Any connections you might be able to find, anything about their character and the way that they're described that we can learn and take away. And then Scott will come up in a few minutes and discuss. All right, so I want to start with just this question of uh, maybe maybe good just reminder for us. Why do we gather together? Why do we come together on Sundays or I guess tonight, Wednesday? Um, what's the purpose of, of coming together as, as a church? Recently, uh, our staff had been reading through a book and it was, it was just a great reminder to me of my need for the church. And specifically, my need um, to gather. And, and he put it in ways that I hadn't, um, I don't know if I would have been able to pick up had he not helped me see. But, but uh, I want to just, I, I want to talk a little, just briefly, about, you know, the purpose of coming together and why we need moments like this and times like these. Um, and it's to challenge and encourage each other with the gospel. It's to remind each other of the gospel story. That the story of God, the story of, of God creating and, and us choosing to deny and walk away and then Him pursuing us and redeeming and restoring the world. Like that, that is our story. That's the, that's the overarching story of our life. And if you, and if you pay, pay enough attention to um, songs on the radio or uh, movies or TV shows or commercials or... Um, conversations at work with with those who aren't followers of Jesus you begin to hear like they live by a different story there's a different story that they are kind of living in and if you and I uh, aren't careful if you and I don't have moments and times where we're, we gather together to remind ourselves of the story in which we choose to live our life by the story in which we believe governs our life the story of the God, of God, the gospel of God. Um, then, then we can easily just kind of fall into yeah, wanting the same things, chasing after the same things, believing the same things. And and there's a lot there at stake. Um, you and I need to be reminded of who God is, what He's done, who we are, and how we are to live. Uh, you know, I need to be reminded. I need you to remind me of who God is and, and what He's done and then who, who I am because of that and then how I am to live. And so when we gather together, this is, this is what we're doing. So we come to a text like this in Colossians 4 and, and you know, except for these first few verses of some real practical things, some real you know, um, imperative commands that Paul gives, some final commands, he gives this list of eight, nine plus names. This list of names. Like, so what are we supposed to do with this list of names? How does this, how does this list going to help us? Like, what, what does this have to do with us? I don't know about you, when I see a list, and if I don't know anybody in that list, or if I, if I don't have any context of anybody in that list, it's, it's really easy to just 
to just kind of read through the list, especially with this kind of list where you don't, can't even pronounce some of the names, right? It's like, is that uh, era somebody, um, you know, Epaphro, whatever. And, 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 and you just, you can just skim through it. I remember hearing a sermon by a guy named Fred Craddock. I'm going to write this down because this is worth checking out later. Fred Craddock. I believe is how it's spelled. Um, he writes, writes a sermon called, gives a sermon called, When the Roll is Called Down Here. I believe, right? When the roll is called, when the roll is called down here, um, you can listen to it on on YouTube. You can't see it because it was probably given in the early '80s or late '70s. Um, it's about a 20-minute sermon. Phenomenal sermon. He deals with Romans 16. I don't know if you've looked at Romans 16 recently, but it's a list of 27 names Paul gives. He just go, he just starts going through and listing a bunch of names of people that he wants to make sure he greets and make sure he has gives a comment to and make sure that 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 they know hey so and so means a lot to me he even calls one of these ladies she is she she is considered like a mother to me imagine that the apostle Paul this woman um, had had made such an impact on him had had cared for him so so well that she earned this title of being Paul's mother like that's how he saw her. So, so Craddock does this great job of um, going through this list and helping us see, like bringing, like these are real people. We, we, we skim through these lists, right? Especially you get to Leviticus and you get to some of these names of so-and-so, begot so-and-so, begot so I mean, we just skim through these names. And these are lists of people. I don't know about you, but when I, when I think of the church advancing the gospel, I think of about a total of about 12 to 15 guys. No, maybe a couple girls. That's it. I, that's, I, I have this, you know, maybe a, a two dozen people that come to mind. And yet we know after Acts 2, there was at least 3,000, right? And we, we've been there. We know, we know where that happened. We, we know how they were baptized. I saw it with my eyes. I saw the place where they most likely, pre, where Peter preached that sermon and were most likely 3,000 people were baptized that afternoon in these basins. I can't remember the name of them. You remember what they're called? The, the place, the cleansing baths? Mikvahs? Yes. Andrew's seen it too. So, so like, we, we know the church had, was big and had spread, and we know that there was, it was full of people. And, and so these lists become all of a sudden, not just a list. That's, this is Craddock's kind of line. He says, this is not a list. Don't, don't see this as a list. Essentially, he's saying, "This is the church. Like these are the these are the faces of the men and the, the names of the the men and the women who were caring for each other, who were being the church, advancing the gospel." The problem with this thinking that the, the apostles did all the work is it kind of it, it kind of creeps into our thinking that we'll let the we'll let the professionals share the gospel. We'll just let the professionals share the gospel. And that's not the story of the church. Turn to Acts chapter 8. I want you to see this, because I want you to see your, yourself in this. I want you to see yourself in this story. Because this is, this, is, this is our story as the church. Those who've accepted Christ, those who've trusted Him as Lord and Savior. So, Acts 7, Stephen's... St- stoned 
at the hands of this this hot shot Pharisee named Saul, who is, we know, the guy writing the book that we're reading. Um, and Saul is at the beginning of beginning of eight. He's going throughout all the region and he's arresting all these people and throwing them in prison. Look at verse three, eight, eight verse three. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And then verse 4, this is the verse I want you to notice. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. It's a a really simple verse. has profound implications about who we are as a people. and, and And what the church is called to do. How the church is called... Um, to respond to to this amazing good news that they have now accepted and believed is to go about preaching. And so when you see this list in Romans 16 or in in Colossians 4, um, see these real people. I mean, there's a variety of of people in this list. Um, In Colossians 4, you have a, a doctor, which is Luke, you have a former slave, Onesimus. You have um, you have a person who deserted Paul, but then reconciled later. That's Mark. You have a person who we know goes on to desert Paul later. We don't know if he deserts Jesus. We just know if he deserts Paul. We don't, we don't know why. We don't know anything. But but you know, Paul had his own Judas, I guess. Uh, you you have you have a uh, you have three Jewish men. You have five Gentile. Men listed. You have a single or slash possibly widow woman mentioned who's hosting a church in her house. Like these are these are people who are advancing the gospel. And and it's it's their faces that we see, that we should see. That's the, the New Testament paints this picture. It's not just the, the professionals doing the work, it's the church. The, the church is carrying the gospel, it's carrying the good news wherever they go. And I love this reminder. I need this reminder. It, what 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 we see in, in Acts, um, what we see in the in the Gospels is that when uh, when 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 someone is in, in, encounters the gospel, encounters Jesus, when they be- come to believe the good news of Christ, all of a sudden. They seek to live out this mission. They, 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 it's almost like they, when they accept Christ, they accept His mission. They, when they believe the gospel, they desire to advance the gospel. It goes hand in hand. It just seems to be like a natural response to something that they've believed. Um, the, uh, I love this word integrity. Uh, not because I'm perfect at it. Um, but because it's a great reminder to me, if you look up the word integrity, it, it has carries with it this idea of being whole or being um, undivided, and and it's 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 kind of often used regarding morals and, and person of character, but but at at the root of it is this idea that a person um, uh, acts according to the values, beliefs, and principles that they claim to hold. Okay? A person who is a person of integrity acts according to the values, beliefs, and principles that they claim to hold. In other words, a person of integrity is a person who lives what they believe. Like what they believe and, what they, and how they live are integrated. 
together. They, they match up. They, they line up. And so when I think about um, all these men and women that when, when they receive the gospel, they, they now live their life in response to Jesus and advancing the gospel, which looks like a lot of different things, okay? looks like a doctor. It looks like uh, a, a, a single woman or widow hosting a church in her home. It looks like a former slave reconciling. It looks like a lot of things. It looks like a lot of careers. It looks like a lot of personalities. It looks like a lot of things. Um, but I love this idea of, of living with integrity. And so when, when, when someone comes to believe in the gospel, what does, it mean, what does it mean to live in response to that? What does it mean to live a gospel-centered um, integrity? Um, yeah, what is gospel integrity lived out? Um, I, I don't know if you. I don't know if you remember a moment where, all of a sudden, you started living what you believed. But um, this might help. I remember uh, being in junior high, early, probably late elementary, early junior high. At some point, I don't know. I remember my mom telling me that I should wear deodorant. I remember believing I should probably wear deodorant because she's telling me to. And then I remember being with friends, specifically friends of the opposite sex, smelling myself, getting a whiff, right? All of a sudden, I had integrity. <laughs> the, the very next day, I was a person of integrity. I, be, I started to live what I believed to be true, right? I, I, knew, I, should, I knew I should wear it, but I experienced why I should wear it, and now... I wear it, right? Ever since then, I've been in that particular area of my life. I've been a person of integrity, <laughs> and I think it's a simple illustration, but it has lots of implications. Um, but but when I when it comes to living in response to the gospel and and having um, having integrity, and so flushing out. Okay, so if I I claim I believe this, then then how should that look in these areas? So I want to I want to talk briefly about the gospel to to, um, to remind ourselves of what it is, and then I want to talk about what what it means. What I see here in, in Colossians four, Paul kind of showing us how to live it out. The gospel, and I want to read this because I I wrote it carefully. The gospel is this amazing news of several things, of God creating and and giving. Okay, God God being this God of creation and God of of, of giving. Us taking and abusing, okay, usurping His authority, um, taking what He's given out of His generosity and His love and using it for our own purposes and our own pleasure. Us taking and abusing, and then Him redeeming and restoring through Jesus back to Himself. Him redeeming and restoring us back to Himself. So despite us being usurpers of His authority, taking what He's given and doing it, using it for our purposes. Um, Jesus not only models a life of fully surrendered to God, but He also dies as perfect death in order for us to be able to live a life unto Him. In, in, in order for us to be reconciled and, and, and be recreated in His image so that we can resemble Him and, and um, re, uh, represent Him 
to others. I think that's, that's, that's the good news. That we no longer um, have to live as a usurper of God's authority, but we get to live as an image bearer of, of Christ in this world, carrying His body. So Jesus, throughout the Scriptures, Jesus is the real Adam. He is the perfect priest. He is the righteous king. Um, he's the better Israel, and He's the final word. And so it's because of Him that, that we have this new life um, where God is making us new, making us in His image, to, to bear His image um, so we can represent Him and, and bring glory to Him for others' benefit and, and our great joy. That's, that's incredible news. And again, like I said, it looks like a lot of different things, a lot of different careers and a lot of different personalities, um, a lot of different um, settings where you get to live that out. But specifically, for all of us in America 2016, um, I think what it means is we have to come face to face, and we've ta- I've talked about this, with, with a, a culture that, that sees life. Their, their overarching story that's, that's pushed constantly is, you are consumers. You are consumers. Take and use and, and keep. Um, Seek, for your, seek your own pleasure and comfort. You deserve this and you deserve um, that. And, and as new creations in Christ, we have to resist this idea. Because um, Tim Keller recently, in fact, just out there, I, was, I had a meeting at 5.30, got over at 6.30, grabbed something to eat, thought, I'm trying to work through some podcasts. Clicked on a, a sermon by Tim Keller that I'm finishing. And um, it happened to fit perfectly. He was describing how Whenever someone encounters God, all of a sudden they take on His mission. Um, when you have this encounter with God, all of, you think about Moses, you think about Abraham, you think about um, uh, Peter, you think about Paul, you think about the, the disciples when they had this encounter with, with Christ or with God, all of a sudden it's like, okay, what do you care about most? Because whatever you care about most, that's what, I'm now, that's what I now care, now care about. What else could I care about more than what you care about because I've had this encounter with you. And he was describing how, um, how when, when that happens, you trade in a life of consuming to a life of, man, be consu- consume me. I, I want to be consumed by your mission. I want to be consumed by you. I want to give everything I have um, to you. And I, I thought that was a great way of describing this this. this transformation that takes place, resisting this temptation to, to want to consume and trade it in, um, because when we accept Christ, we accept His mission. So then, so then what does it mean to follow, to, to live a life um, of gospel integrity? And so I think there's three things that jumped out at me that I want to, I want to hit um, that I think happen in this section that Paul illustrates for us. First is an integrity in prayer. Um, integrity in prayer. And I think it means praying gospel-centered prayers. Praying gospel-centered prayers. Paul prays different um, than most of us. If you, if you look throughout the letters, um, if you just go through um, his letters and, and, and look up the word pray or, pray or prayer or praise or see what Paul prays for or um, what he asks them to pray for, and just kind of compile that list and put that together and, and you'll start to notice some, some common themes. And they're gospel-centered. 
Um, you also notice not once. Well, let me ask this question. If, if, if I were to take a poll, actually, if I were to be in a, any, any classroom, let's say I had five different classrooms and I took prayer requests, what would the majority of prayer requests be about? What would you say? Health. Health. Health, success. Health safety, success. Um, and so there's, there's one prayer where Paul p- prays that, he, that, uh, that they would be delivered from evil men, but it's after he prays that the, that the word and that the gospel would be advanced. Um, but other than that, there really isn't, there isn't any prayers uh, for health. Paul's in prison, for gosh sakes. He's in prison here. He never prays that he would get out. Like, he never asked, he never asked to be delivered from prison. He asked, what does he ask for? What's he asked for here? In Colossians 4. Not to be released from prison, but what? Yeah, that, that God would open a door, that, that He would be able to declare the mystery of Christ, that He would be able to speak it clearly. He never once prays. Pray that I get out of here, guys. Pray that I get out of here. Pray that, pray that everything I'm going through gets over quickly, um, is as easy as possible, um, Fastest recovery as possible. Uh, I mean, and and so it's it's interesting. So let me give you some to write down. Second Thessalonians three one and two says this. Final, finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may spread. May sorry, may speed ahead, and and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. Um, for not all have faith. That's about the closest Paul, Paul prays um, for safety, is, is that one. Philemon 6 says, which we'll, we'll get to next week, And I pray that the, sh- the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. That's his prayer uh, in Philemon. Ephesians 3 16 through 19 is one of my favorite prayers. I'm actually going to read it at the end. Um, but Ephesians 3, 16 through 19. And of course, this Colossians 2, uh, 4, sorry, Colossians 4, 2 through 4 here. But it, so if, if you were to take, um, you know, if someone were to record your prayers for a week or for a month, and, and, and what would your prayers tell them you believe about God? How do your prayers paint a picture of God? What, does that, what do your prayers tell you about what you believe about God? And so this is what I mean about praying with gospel and integrity is when you pray, do you think through how you pray and what you pray for and, and, and whether or not you, you want this mission, this, this gospel um, to advance and... Uh, just a, it's a it's a good question to ask. Secondly, um, it means integrity in action, and specifically, what I see with Paul is a patient urgency with the gospel. There is a patient urgency. Uh, Ryan already mentioned there's this deep urgency you, you see in two through four, um, but I, I see a, I see throughout Paul's ministry I see this patient urgency. In fact, um, Paul prays that God would open a door. 
that God, so he's patient. He recognizes that this is something he has, that this is God's deal, ultimately. And so God has to open the door, and, and I have to wait on God to move. And so there's a patience. Um, and so it's the difference of, the difference is instead of us thinking it's all up to us, and oh my gosh, they asked a question, and I hope I answered it right. I think I said the wrong word. Oh my gosh, they may not ever. And the pressure that we can put on ourselves. And it's a recognition that, listen, God is, God, this is God's deal. He's got this. He's opening doors. He's making stuff happen. We wait on Him. But there's an urgency with Paul. I mean, again, he's in prison for doing this. So it's not like he, he's like, oh, you know what, I think I'll, I think I'll go into a synagogue today and preach. It's like, no, he, he went to cities specifically to go to the center of, of religion and, and preach the gospel where it was most hostile. And like, like Ryan said, Aristarchus was there with him in Ephesus and was dragged in because of his relationship with Paul, was dragged in to this riot that Paul creates because of his, his ur- sense of urgency to spread the good news. Um, so there is, there is a lot at stake and the choices we make, I believe, matter. And so there is an urgency, but it's an urgency that recognizes God's in control of it. Patient ur- urgency. Um, I don't think that answers the question in terms of the, the, the choices we make and the actions, the, the things that we do every day. I don't think, it, I don't think um, this fully gives you the answer of whether or not you buy this car or that car or this house or that house or, you know. But I think what, what this can do is, is, is become lenses by which you see decisions that you have to make. So, so you're making decisions and you begin to think, okay, so God, what do you care about most? What should I care about most? Um, help me to see, you know, the things that I have as just things um, that, that maybe I need for a season. But ultimately, God, help me to never put my trust in those things and to always rely on you. So they can become lenses by which you see the decisions that you have to make. Is the gospel? Let the gospel um, be lenses by which you make decisions. Third is an integrity in relationships. Integrity in relationships. Um, so Paul models for us, he models for us uh, a love for Jesus that was evident. Um, right? He, he, he has the highest view of Christ in this, in this letter than any other letter in the New Testament in terms of the, p- painting Jesus in this highest view. Okay? He, is pre- he is preeminent. Uh, and then he says in 3, to, to set your minds on Christ, to set your mind on the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Fix your mind on Him. Fix your eyes on Him. Um, pay attention to Him. Focus on Him. Grow an affection for Him. And then, and then let the, the things on earth take care of themselves as you put those things to death. Um, that's, that's Colossians 3. So Paul has this love for Jesus that was evident. Paul surrounded himself with people who lived with gospel integrity. Okay, all these people he talks about, um, they are fellow workers in the kingdom, they are brothers, they are uh, ministers of the gospel. He surrounded himself with people who live with gospel integrity. And then he was always reaching out to people who didn't know um, and preaching the gospel and seeking to reach as many as he could. 
so he modeled something that, that um, this little picture, that I'm thankful for this ministry called 3DM, that um, you've seen some of these triangles that we've drawn or, um, or circles. They're just helpful shapes that, that help me remember something important. And, and the one that, it's another triangle. They love triangles, by the way. Um, and it's called the up, in, and out triangle. Up, in, and out. What do you think up stands for? When it comes to relationships, what would up mean? Okay? Relationship with God. So, staying connected with God. So a person who lives with gospel um, integrity in their relationships stays, stays in relationship with God. Think about Jesus getting away to spend time with the Father. Stays in relationship with God. Um, stays connected to the body of Christ. Is, is, is united with the body, is in relationship, is, is accountable to, is sub, submitting to a, a group of people who, who love them and um, will, will speak truth and remind them of the gospel and who they are. Okay? And then also is salt and light in this world. Also recognizes that they have responsibilities that God's given them. They can represent God in, in their relationships and at work and in their careers and in the, in the things that the resources and the things that God's given them, influencing people for Christ. So, um, so Jesus, so Paul, we know Jesus spending time with the Father, spending time with his disciples. We see Jesus preaching and, and healing and spending time with the crowds. Um, so when you look at this, what, what do you? What do you think of? What, what comes to mind? What, um, in my experience with these, when I've talked with people about it, either they're at least good at one, maybe two. And, and for me, these two are usually pretty strong. And this is the one that, this is the one that always jumps out at me when I, when I look at this triangle. This, this, this side of the triangle goes, man, I am, I am not a triangle. I am a line. That's, that's really what I am. I'm being a line right now, and I need to be a triangle. Um, but and so it, this forces me to start thinking. Okay, um, my life just can't be about hanging out with, because because he wants me to be here. And so I think about a guy I, I work out with named Tyler. I think about a guy I live next to named Stephen, um, and those are guys that come to mind for me. So, what about you? Uh, maybe maybe it's this is something you can reflect on. I'm going to give you a couple minutes. Um, maybe it's the prayers, praying with integrity. Maybe it's um, um, action with integrity, acting with integrity, um, making decisions with integrity. And maybe or maybe it's relationships. But spend some spend a few minutes reflecting on what what um, God may be drawing your attention to, and then we will come back together and pray. Okay. I want to read uh, Ephesians 3, 16 through 21, actually, as somewhat of a benediction for tonight. And I'm going to read it as if um, 
well, this is, this is my prayer for us and for you. So I pray that according to the riches of His glory, that He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, so that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And now to Him who is able to do far more abundant, abundantly than all we could ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.